to hear the word of God, better still to hear it and see it with your own eyes. First Peter chapter one. Two verses for this morning. Word of the Lord through that beloved apostle, the apostle Peter, who gives hope to so many of us. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to the pilgrims of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father and sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace be multiplied. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you this morning as we do so often in our own individual lives that we don't have to turn to this book on our own or try to understand it on our own. But Lord, we turn to it in fellowship with you. A God who loves to reveal himself to us, his will to us. And we pray, Lord, this morning that as we open up this new book, we pray that you would just say amen to the truths that are found in it by your Holy Spirit. Give us understanding of your word and how it applies to our lives. And we pray, Lord, that every purpose for which this book of the Bible is in this Bible, that as we begin to study it today, that all of those purposes would be accomplished in our lives individually and personally as well. Thank you, Lord, for the ministry of your Holy Spirit. Thank you for your word and the joy and the privilege of being able to study it together and fellowship with you this morning. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. This letter of first Peter was written by the apostle Peter and ancient letters are a little bit different from how we write letters today. Today, when we write a letter to someone, typically the structure is that we begin with a greeting, dear so-and-so, whoever we are uh, writing to. So we identify who we're writing to. It's followed then by a greeting, something like, I trust that all is well with you, that kind of thing. And then that greeting is followed by the body of the letter, the purpose or reason for writing the letter. And then it's followed by some kind of a benediction or some kind of a closing and then signing uh, the name of the writer of the letter. In the ancient world, the structure of letters was uh, largely the same as it is today, but with a couple of significant kind of changes to that. In Peter's day, um, if you wanted to know who was uh, today, you know, if you want to know who has written you the letter, uh, we receive it in the mail or it's handed to us. Very often you have the writer of the letter. Their name is right on the uh, envelope. Or it's very simple to turn a couple pages or one page in the letter and see who's written it there at the bottom. In letters in the ancient world, a typical letter would, be, uh, would begin with the name of the person who is writing the letter. And then the identification of who they're writing to, then the greeting, then the body of the letter, and then the appropriate closing. And one of the reasons that they wrote at the beginning of their letters, they, the writer would always identify 
themselves is because in those days, uh, letters were written on scrolls and they were rolled up and would have a seal on them. And so uh, if it was a long letter, you'd have to unravel the scroll and go all the way to the end. And there's no envelopes and find out who it is that wrote this letter. So they would just simply identify themselves at uh, the outset. We notice that Peter identifies himself in verse one as an apostle. And so this tells us that this is a purely personal letter that he is writing but one that he is writing with apostolic authority. And so this calling of God upon his life as an apostle was his authority for the content of the letter. And so it's written with God's authority, of course, uh, also with the Holy Spirit's inspiration. And so this is intended to instruct not only those that it's been written to, but God's people all through the ages. Now, first Peter was written to Christians who were in the middle of great, great suffering in their life, tremendous trials, tremendous persecution and difficulty. There are some verses within the book that help us to realize that. And I'd like you just to turn to them as I call them out and we can I want you to see them with your own eyes. And and so first Peter, uh, chapter one, verse six, Peter wrote in this, you greatly rejoice. Though now for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials. So it's Christians that are in the middle of great trial. Chapter 2, verse 12. Having your conduct honorable among the Gentiles, that when they speak against you, not if, but when, they speak against you as evildoers, they may by your own good, by your good works, which they observe, glorify God and the day of visitation. And so they were being unjustly persecuted. Uh, chapter four, verse 12, very significantly. Peter wrote, and here's the heart of, of the pastor and Peter. He said, beloved. Do not think it strange concerning the fiery trial. I mean, trials are bad enough. Fiery trial, which is to try you as though some strange thing has happened to you. And then finally, chapter five, verse eight. Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, walks about like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. Resist him steadfast in the faith knowing that the same sufferings are experienced by your brotherhood in the world. But may the God of all grace who called us to his eternal glory by Christ Jesus, after you have suffered a while, perfect, establish, strengthen and settle you. So we know there's trouble that the Christians that are receiving this letter are facing Uh, from the letter itself. But we also know what the historical context of the letter was as well. It was probably written in late in 64 A.D. or very, very early in 65 A.D. And knowing that is significant because we know that in October of 64 A.D., the Roman emperor at that time, an emperor known as Caesar Nero, began a absolutely murderous persecution of Christians in Rome itself, which then spread 
in varying degrees throughout the Roman uh, Empire. Historians tell us that when Rome, uh, that Rome at the time of Nero was seriously devastated by a fire in the summer, July of 64 A.D., and that historians legitimately suspect that Nero himself was behind the fires, wanting to burn down portions of Rome that he felt were unworthy of Rome, these kind of modest buildings made of wood built one on top of the other. He was a great builder. He liked to build. And so the idea was that he decided to burn down sections of Rome so that he could rebuild Rome with the kind of grandeur that he felt uh, it deserved. Now, the Roman population at the time of those fires had no doubt in their mind that Nero was to blame for the fires. And so following the fires, as you might imagine, there was a very bitter uproar. And uh, the uproar was so great that it uh, threatened uh, Nero and threatened his power. And so he needed a scapegoat, somebody to blame for those fires. And so he chose this group of people that were uh, politically very uh, underrepresented and very uh, powerless, politically speaking, uh, to put the blame upon. And that group was uh, Christians. The Roman historian uh, Tacitus wrote not long after the events, he said concerning all of this, neither human assistance in the shape of imperial gifts nor attempts to appease the gods could remove the sinister report that the fire was due to Nero's own orders. And so, in the hope of dissipating the rumor, he falsely diverted the charge on to a set of people to whom the vulgar gave the name Christians. And so Tacitus was certainly no uh, friend of Christianity, but he recognized that uh, the Christians were not to be blamed for the fire and that Nero was simply choosing them to be the scapegoats for his own crime. And so Nero's accusation against the Christians led to a terrible persecution of Christians, especially in Rome, but in, very, uh, in, in, in varying degrees, different pockets within the Roman Empire. Again, from the historical records of uh, Tacitus, we're told that Nero, in his persecution of Christians, he would take uh, Christians who were alive, cover them with pitch, uh, tie them to posts in his royal gardens, and he would light them on fire at night in order to provide uh, the lighting for his galas and for his events there uh, in his gardens. He's a very sick man. Christians were regularly uh, fed to wild animals in the arenas in order to provide entertainment for the general population Nero would have Christians crucified in large numbers, and he did that in order. It's just a direct mockery of the Christian faith. He would have Christians sewn up inside of the skins of wild animals and then set his hunting dogs loose uh, upon them so that they would then in this wild frenzy uh, tear the skins apart and then proceed to tear literally limb from limb. Uh, these living Christians inside of these skins just being torn apart by these animals. And in all, uh, Nero murdered thousands and thousands of Rome's Christians. And while these kind of things weren't yet happening in 
where the recipients of this letter uh, lived in the Roman uh, provinces of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia. All of those are located, parts of the Roman Empire, located in what we know as Turkey today. So this kind of persecution hadn't come to the recipients of this letter uh, just yet. But Peter wrote this letter to prepare them for a greater persecution and suffering that was uh, possibly going to lay ahead for them. And so this letter was written by Peter in order to provide encouragement to Christians, uh, eternal perspective to Christians, practical instruction to Christians who are in the midst of great, great trials. And so the theme of the book is the theme of suffering, living the Christian life in a context of suffering. And that can be suffering related to our own bodies, uh, related to what goes on in our own minds, or what it is that's going on in the world around us, or what it is that's going on in our life immediately around us. And the reason, and for this reason, for the last 2,000 years, probably the single greatest place, next to maybe the Psalms that God's people have gone to when, when we come to these kind of trials in our lives, that can really, truly be described as suffering. Uh, we tend to make a beeline to the epistles of Peter, especially First Peter, to receive uh, all that is written in it, the kind of instruction, encouragement uh, that we need. It contains encouragement, and I mentioned needed encouragement, because the letter lets Christians in this kind of a condition know that everything's under control. It's under God's control and that things are going to be all right ultimately. It also uh, provides us help in maintaining perspective. When we end up in a trial as deep as the trials that these Christians were facing, one of the first things that we lose is perspective. At the very time that it's important that we don't lose perspective. And so because that's a temptation, we can turn to this book and this book helps us to maintain an eternal perspective related to the suffering that we will all face and the fallenness of this world. It also look it also contains very, very good practical instruction on because when we find ourselves in trials of this depth, sometimes we don't even know what direction to go in. We don't know what to focus on. We don't know what to make the priorities in our life. We don't know what the majors are. We don't know what the minors are. We don't know how to differentiate between the two. We can. You can get into trials that are so difficult, suffering that's so difficult that your mind is numb, your heart is numb. You don't have enough to even think outside of coping with what you're in the middle of. And you need somebody else to come alongside you, put an arm around you and say, listen, this is what you've got to keep as a priority in your life. This is what you need to focus on and make sure it doesn't unravel on you in the middle of this trial. For instance, later in this book, we're going to read where one of the things that Peter gives these Christians instruction on is marriage. He speaks to the wives. He speaks to the husbands. You say, why would he speak to husbands and wives in a letter that's talking to people that are in the midst of this kind of suffering? Because one of the greatest casualties of suffering in human life shouldn't be in the case of a Christian, but one of the greatest casualties when great suffering comes 
into a husband's life or into a wife's life is that marriage. And here is a way of Peter coming in and saying, this is the kind of circumstance where you're ultimately going to come out of this difficulty one day, be on the other side of it. But it's very important that you don't lose your marriage in the process and so forth with all of the practical instruction that he gives uh, in here. And then he tells us how to conduct ourselves in a way that God is glorified through our lives in the suffering or in the trial. And that's priceless. Again, we will come one day, even if it means us stepping into the glory of heaven in order to come to the end of a trial or suffering. But one day the suffering comes to an end. And one of the things that God knows and Peter knows will be most important to us as Christians when that happens is to be able to look back upon how I handled myself in that suffering and to be able to say, I did not mar my Christian witness. And and that's a priceless thing to be able to say on the other side of a great trial. And so it gives us that kind of instruction for how to glorify God, how to navigate it in a holy way so that we can look back on it and know that we, we brought glory to God in the suffering. Now, someone may be sitting here today and thinking, well, I'm not in the middle of any suffering or any trial at the moment. I wonder if this is going to be of any benefit to me. Well, there's an old saying about trials uh, concerning Christians. It's a threefold relationship that we have with trials, and that is that we are either going into a trial, uh, coming out uh, uh, of a, a trial, or we are currently in a trial. So if you are in some kind of a place of coming out or just about to go into one, then listen to the, what we're going to be teaching this morning and beyond uh, for your future need. Now, we're able to read uh, this letter knowing that if this letter is able to encourage and strengthen men and women who are being sown into the skins of wild animals to be torn apart by wild dogs in just a few minutes, that if it has a word to them, if it can comfort and bring perspective to that degree of trial, and certainly it brings uh, perspective and encouragement and comfort to any lesser trial that we may be facing. And then we want to notice as a part of his greeting this morning that Peter gives a beautiful four point description of a Christian in verses one and two. He reminds us in verse one that we are pilgrims in verse two, that we are elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, that we are the objects of the sanctifying influence of the Holy Spirit, and that we have a Savior who understands our need for forgiveness while we're on this pilgrimage from earth to heaven. Let's notice his description of Christians here uh, for the bulk of our sermon this morning. In verse uh, 1, he describes us as pilgrims. We are pilgrims, he says, in this fallen world. And the world, word pilgrim, it means a sojourner. It means temporary residence. Now, the silver lining of suffering and of persecution and of trials in this fallen world for the child of God is that it reminds us that we're just pilgrims in this earth, that we're just passing through here. 
that this world isn't our home, that we are on our way to our true home of heaven. And suffering does something in our lives that re- to cause us to remember that in a way that we don't remember it with the same strength or urgency when everything is going well. And so when things begin to fall apart, the body can begin to fall apart. Life can begin to fall apart. Life can begin to heap disappointment upon disappointment upon disappointment. And here is this opportunity, and and as life does that, because this world is a fallen place, then the truth that this is not my home, this is not as good as it gets for me as a Christian, I am just passing through here on my way uh, to my true home, on my way to heaven, and that causes us to appreciate and to embrace that truth uh, more than ever. And I think that one of the things, even as we see the uncertainty of the world around us today, just in the last few years, we see how many wars are breaking out, the instability of vast segments of the world today, like wasn't true four years ago. Uh, We see not only nations uh, warring against nations, but we see kingdom against kingdom, as the Bible says, Uh, people fighting within nations, uh, civil wars for the control of nations. We have seen an economic meltdown in the world that the world leaders still have no idea. It's uncharted territory. They still have no idea where this ultimately goes. And we look at all of this, and because we're Christians, we're not immune to the consequences of these kind of things going on. But we look at those kind of things and we say, oh, nothing good can come out of it. I'll tell you, there is something that good that can come out of it. I don't know about you, but it is far easier for me to say in the last four years, this is not my home, this is not my home, this is not my home. I am a pilgrim here and I am on my way to my home in heaven is a lot easier to say that and to rejoice in that and keep that at the forefront of my mind than it was even years ago. And it's always been at the forefront of my mind. And so difficult times cause us to remember, not only remember that we're pilgrims, but to embrace that truth as a truth about my life and about where it is that uh, I am going to end up after this life. And so As we see the things happening in this world, it makes it easier and easier to say, thank you, Lord, that this world is not my home, but heaven is my home. And it makes heaven more real to us than ever. Paul said, for our citizenship is in heaven, from which we also eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm a citizen of heaven as a Christian this morning. You're a citizen of heaven. You've already got the passport. How wonderful it is to be, you know, you travel around the world. Sometimes you go into real hot spots uh, around the world, difficult places. And as an American, you got that American passport and you realize this is I don't have to live here the rest of my life. In two weeks, I'm getting on a plane and I'm getting out of here and I'm headed to a far better place to spend the rest of my life. That's been our portion as Americans, at least up to this point in time in recent history. But what happens when the whole world, when America isn't the bubble that it's been in the past, and the whole world begins to bear the, 
greatness of the consequences of fallenness and all. I'll tell you, we will prize our citizenship in heaven and realize, all right, I'm here, my three score and ten or however long it is that God wants me to be here, but one day I'm going to be out of here. I've got my passport right here in my heart by the Holy Spirit. I'm headed to heaven, and that's where I'm going to be for eternity. Now, notice he called, he, his description not only does he describe us as pilgrims, but in verse 2 he describes us as elect. We are the elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. The word elect means to choose. It means to select. And so what he's saying here is that as Christians, God the Father chose us to become saved, and thus we became his children. He also tells us that his choice of us uh, is related to his foreknowledge. Now, the Bible teaches that God knows everything. He's your worst nightmare uh, in Jeopardy or any other kind of game you want to play with him, Scrabble, Monopoly, whatever it is. have no hope of, of winning. So God knows everything. This is known as his omniscience. And part of his knowing everything includes a complete knowledge of everything that's going to happen Long before it happens, uh, Acts chapter 15, verse 18, James said, known to God from eternity are all his works. And as it relates to our salvation, God elected or he chose uh, for salvation those that he foreknew would ultimately trust in Jesus. We find that truth taught elsewhere in the New Testament Romans chapter 8, verse 28. And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God and are the called according to his purpose. For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. And moreover, whom he predestined, these he also called and whom he called, these he also justified, and whom he justified, these he also glorified. And so this is what is known as God's election or God's predestination. If you're new to all of this this morning and you think, oh, no, I, what have I done in coming to this church? There were a hundred other churches I could have gone to today, and I come into here and it sounds like he's trying to describe the Pythagorean theorem or some other ungodly thing that I tried to learn uh, in high school. Well, stick with me a little bit, and some of it might stick, but it's very, very important to understand this as Christians. This whole aspect related to God and his election and his uh, out of his foreknowledge is known as election or it's known as predestination. God chose us to be saved before the foundation of the world. We're told in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4. God chose us, chose me, chose you who are Christians to be saved before the world was ever created. Paul put it this way, by the Spirit of God. Ephesians chapter 1. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Just as he chose us in him, in Jesus, before the foundation of the world. 
So when we give our lives to the Lord by trusting in Jesus for our salvation, it is only to discover that we have done so because he first chose us. Jesus speaking in John chapter 15, he said to the disciples, no longer do I call you servants for a servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends for all things that I heard from my father. I've made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should remain. That whatever you ask the father in my name, he may give you. Now, one of the great mistakes that people make concerning God's election or concerning predestination is to assume That because God chooses some to be saved, that he must likewise choose the lost to be lost. But the Bible never speaks of predestination in the context of the lost, only concerning the saved. You say, well, the logical conclusion, God isn't interested in our logic. He's very logical. He's very, very smart. And if the if the implication that he foreordains some to be saved means that he also foreordains others to be lost. He could have stated it for himself, but he does not state it for himself because it isn't true. And we have to be careful to honor that distinction in God's word because he predestines some to be saved doesn't mean that he predestines others to be lost for somehow in the mystery of God's election and predestination. It can be safely and accurately applied to the saved, but it cannot be safely applied to the lost. God does not predestine people to hell. Now, the Bible teaches that both things, God's predestination concerning man's salvation But it also teaches man's free moral agency or human responsibility concerning his own salvation. That is that man is also free to choose or reject God's savior, to choose or reject God's salvation and thus be held personally responsible for that choice. So somebody says, how do you reconcile These two seemingly contradictory things. In other words, if God chooses, then how can I be held responsible? And if I choose, then how can God be credited? Well, one explanation is the one that we're given in verse two, and that is that God chooses out of his foreknowledge that God chooses to choose in God's foreknowledge allows God to choose or elect while at the same time making man personally responsible for his own decision to be saved or lost, both of which are taught in the scriptures. And so God chooses those who he knows are going to choose his son. Now, these two truths can of God's sovereignty and of man's uh, human responsibility or his own free moral agency related to his salvation They can seem contradictory to one another as we examine them from the very, very severe uh, finiteness of our own minds. But they're not contrary to one another at all. 
from the vantage point of heaven. Any difficulty that we have in reconciling God's election and human responsibility, that difficulty lies in our minds. It does not lie in God's minds at all. Uh, someone, asked, uh, someone was asked how he reconciled God's sovereignty and man's responsibility concerning salvation, and he replied, I don't reconcile good friends. They can seem as if they're at enmity with one another in our minds. But from God's perspective, the perspective of heaven, they're not enemies at all. They're very, very good friends. The Bible teaches both truths, and thus we believe both of those truths, and we teach both of those truths. There is something related to the human mind. It, it has other applications, but has a great application concerning the human mind called the vanishing point. And all of us have a vanishing point. Vanishing point is often used related to the eye, but is also equally true related to the mind. If you go out to the Bonneville Salt Flats, where uh, land speed records have been set uh, for decades, they take these machines that have jet engines and have to be slowed down by gigantic parachutes once they set the record. And they run these trials out there because it's just this great long flat where they can get that speed up without worrying about running into a mountain or hitting a dip or a valley. It's just this great long expanse that goes for miles and miles and miles and miles in all directions. So stand somewhere on that Bonneville Salt Flats there in the United States. Send a friend out from you with an eight-foot pole with a great red flag at the top of that pole. And then let them walk off in, into the sunset in some direction. And they walk and they walk and they walk and they walk and they walk. And as they walk, they become smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller. And pretty soon, you're doing everything you can with the naked eye to keep them in sight. And then one second, they take the next step and are gone. They're not really gone. But that's the vanishing point for the human eye. We have watched them as far as we can go. And yet, though they pass our vanishing point, they will continue to walk for miles and miles and miles and miles beyond where we lost them at our vanishing point. And what is true of the eye? is also true of the mind. You take any subject you'd like to discuss with God concerning his ways or his thoughts or his nature. You take that subject out as far as you want in your mind. You take that your understanding of that great theme or that great truth as far as your mind can go out there and you plant your eight foot pole with your red flag at the top of that eight foot pole and then realize that God's understanding of that same subject goes on infinitely beyond where we can take our minds or what we can understand. It goes way beyond our mental vanishing point. And so it is concerning election and predestination and human responsibility concerning man's salvation. Beyond our vanishing point, these truths are not only not contradictory, 
These two great truths are complementary to one another. People try to reconcile these two great truths concerning God by trying to find some middle ground between the two truths. You will never reconcile them in that place because they don't need to be reconciled. And to try and find that place is to violate both truths. The fact of the matter is the truth concerning their reconciliation is not found somewhere in between them, but it lies at the end and last extreme of both of the truths. They are good friends when they are viewed from heaven. Someone says, well, that, that blows my mind. Yes, for the moment it does. From this side of heaven, it does. But not when we get to heaven. Anytime you have the finite, us, in relationship with the infinite, God, you better get used to mystery. Because we can only understand his truths, any of his truths, a certain distance out so far. And then beyond that and beyond the revelation that he gives us in his word, it becomes mystery and faith and wonderfully so. The old saying goes like this, a God small enough to understand isn't big enough to worship. And it's true, because if I could understand him, he would be smaller than my mind. And if he's smaller than my mind, he is smaller than me. And if he's smaller than me, then why am I going to worship someone or something that's smaller than me? If we want a God who is worthy of our worship, then we're going to have to get used to mystery and, and get used to faith related to the revelation that he gives us uh, in his word. And so when we come to the passages that teach God's election and predestination in the Bible here at Calvary Chapel, we teach that truth. And when we come to passages in the Bible that teach all about man's free moral agency and his own human responsibility for his own salvation, then we teach that truth as well, knowing that both are true and that each does something very vital and very important in God's dealings with man. We must never throw off one or the other or become unbalanced related to these things because they're both intended to do something necessary in human lives for them to come to faith in Christ. And I believe that each of those truths brings something very important to the table, even with our own limited understanding. I think that in general, the passages that emphasize man's responsibility and free will concerning his salvation should be directed toward the lost, while the passages that emphasize God's election should be supremely directed toward the saved. When Jesus spoke, to Nicodemus, the city of Jerusalem, in John chapter 3. You have an environment that is pure evangelism. Pure evangelism. Evangelism done by Jesus. You can't do better evangelism than that. Jesus, in speaking to Nicodemus about his soul, never talked about election. Never talked about predestination. When he talked with a lost he spoke to them about their human responsibility to put their faith in Christ. 
Then when he speaks to the disciples later who have put their faith in Christ, then he speaks to them about the fact that they did not choose him, but that he had chosen uh, them. And so that whole emphasis of Jesus with Nicodemus purely talking about his personal responsibility concerning his own salvation. And, but once a person becomes saved, I mean, in addition now to facing all the fallenness of this world that everyone else faces that doesn't know the Lord. Here we are. We have to fight an old nature every day. We've got a spiritual warfare that we have to deal with uh, every day. We endure persecution or rejection for our faith. And God knows that we need the strongest assurance possible of our salvation in the face of all of these oppositions. And so he lets us know that our salvation is as sure as his word. As sure as his ability to choose and to keep. And that's why Peter brings up the subject of election at the beginning of this letter to encourage Christians in the middle of great suffering to assure us of the security of our salvation. It is so sure, the Bible says, that God speaks of the Christian salvation in the past tense. He speaks of our glorification, our presence in heaven. In the past tense, he speaks of us as already being seated in the heavenlies, the Bible uh, teaches. And so this is what these two truths, when they're well directed and properly directed, what they accomplish and need to accomplish in the broad diversity of mankind, saved and unsaved in the world today. Well, in listening to all of this, You might sit here this morning and you're not yet a Christian and you might be tempted to think, well, how can I know whether God has chosen me to be saved or he's elected me to be saved? The answer to that is very, very simple. You choose him this morning and you'll discover that he's already chosen you. You cannot get out from under your personal responsibility related to your own salvation. There's a great verse that God has for you if you don't know the Lord this morning. And it's Peter's second epistle, chapter three, verse nine. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness, but is long suffering toward us. And here it is, not willing that any should perish, but that all would come to repentance. You say, what's God's will for my life that you wouldn't perish? That that you'd come to repentance and put your faith in Christ this morning. That's God's will. But that's the decision that you have to make for yourself this morning. Now, close with the final two points here. And we won't be as long on them, obviously, as we were on this. You say, why in the world would you go? Why would you get so academic on that particular subject? You have. If you don't know, you will find out someday. uh, The how important it is to understand this because of the great divide that this produces within the body of Christ. He tells us in verse two, continue to describe who and what we are as Christians. He says we are the objects of the sanctifying influence of the Holy Spirit. So sanctification means to be set apart for God's use. And, and so now because we're saved, the Holy Spirit has come into our lives and our lives are now dedicated supremely to God's purposes and his plans for our lives. 
that sanctification that he speaks about there in sanctification of the spirit. It's in the present tense. So it not only speaks of the Holy Spirit's part in our salvation in convicting us of sin, of convincing us of our need of a savior and then bringing us uh, to Jesus for salvation. But right at the beginning of our Christian life, the Holy Spirit began his priceless work in us of making us more and more like Jesus, who is the definition of sanctification or holiness. And so Peter is encouraging them and he's encouraging us that our entire lives are being lived in the context of the very active activity of the Holy Spirit to make us more like Christians. And he's reminding them that their suffering and trial and difficulty and persecution is not causing that great work of the Holy Spirit to make us like Christians. It isn't harming or damaging that work, but that it even gives them an even greater opportunity to make us more like Christ, which he will elaborate on a little bit later uh, in the letter. And then he tells us in verse four, uh, in verse two, for obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. So the Holy Spirit's work of sanctification in our lives will always result in a greater and greater and greater obedience to the word of God on our part. We cannot be progressively being made more and more like Jesus without becoming more and more obedient to the Father's Word. He said, I do always those things that please the Father. So always there's going to be, where the Spirit is at work, a increasing obedience in our life toward the Word of God. And where there isn't that strong desire to uh, obey God's Word and to grow in Christ-likeness, then something is wrong between me and the Holy Spirit. But what I like about this is Peter speaks here in the mentioning of the sprinkling of the blood of Jesus. There is in the mentioning of that the recognition that none of us is going to be perfectly obedient to God's word this side of heaven, but that each of us are going to need the forgiveness of sins provided for us and Jesus' sacrifice And we're going to need that forgiveness applied to our lives on a regular basis in order for us to maintain an intimate relationship with God and also with other Christians. The Apostle John described it in this way in his first epistle, 1 John 1, 7. But if we walk in the light as he, God, is in the light, we have fellowship one uh, one with another. And the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us. From all sin. So sometimes we get into difficulty or we get into suffering or great trial. We fall short in that trial. We're less than like Christ in that trial. And we say, oh, what in the world is going to happen to us here? I mean, is it through God, God done with me? Is, you know, has the relationship been, uh, you know, permanently damaged? And it hasn't been damaged. God just simply applies his grace to that and forgiveness to our lives in order for full fellowship with God to be restored. How does it happen practically? Again, first John one nine, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us of our sins 
and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And so when we fall short in this pilgrimage and we confess that sin to God, the forgiveness that's found in Jesus' sacrifice is once again applied to our lives and we receive the forgiveness of sins. He closes then finally with this greeting of grace and peace and at the end of verse 2. And it was a common way that they would say, uh, greet one another in those days. Uh, the Greeks would greet one another by, uh, by the Greek word charis, um, and, and it meant grace. So if you were a Gentile or a Greek and you would say to somebody, you would say grace, have a gracious day. And grace means unmerited favor. It means basically we say have a great day, uh, have an unmerited favor day. Uh, it was a way of saying have a better day than you deserve. <laughs> It'd be quite a new greeting, wouldn't it? Hey, good to talk to you. Have a better day than you deserve. I wouldn't be offended by it at all, by the way. Somebody said that to me. The Jews would always greet one another by saying shalom or peace. The order is significant. Grace to you and peace be multiplied. Always in the greetings of the New Testament. It's always grace first and then uh, peace. You never find it reversed in the scripture. And the reason is, is that peace is a byproduct of grace. No one can know the peace of God or peace in a relationship with God that does not know the grace of God, that he is a gracious God uh, toward us. And so uh, the one is a byproduct of the other. And that's why grace and peace are known as the Siamese twins of the New Testament. In other words, they're inseparable. We cannot have a grace or a peace-filled relationship with God until we recognize that he deals with us on the basis of grace lavishly bestowing unmerited favor upon us, blessings that we do not deserve because of his great love for us. And he differs from Paul. Paul said over and over, grace and peace be to you. Peter adds, be multiplied to them because of the suffering and the difficulty the Christians were facing that he was uh, writing to. And so he is essentially communicating that no matter how great our suffering becomes, no matter how great our trial or our difficulty, God will always make sure to multiply his grace and then his peace upon his life. As we sing in the song that uh, is kind of in the current rotation uh, these days, his grace is greater still. And so it is. Whatever trial we find ourselves in, God will raise the level and the um, bestowment of his grace upon our lives uh, accordingly to make his grace the dominant thing that we remember in that trial. And so Peter begins this letter with a reminder that no matter how great the difficulty in our lives, the entirety of the Godhead, you've probably noticed, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, are massively invested in and active in our lives. And for all that we face in this fallen world as Christians, it's amazing to realize and to rest in the fact that we've been chosen by God. Nobody can take our salvation away from us. Our lives are being made into something priceless by the Holy Spirit. The sacrifice of our Savior Jesus supplies us with all of the forgiveness we'll need. 
this pilgrimage between here and the heaven we're headed for and that God has a grace for us that's greater than every trial we will ever face. Praise the Lord. Let's stand together and we'll pray. Father, thank you for this Holy Spirit-inspired introduction to the book of 1 Peter. We thank you for all of the theology, the truth about you that is found there. Lord, the truths that so often only become precious to us as life becomes more difficult and more disappointing in this fallen world. We thank you that as it does that in our lives, Lord, and as things break down all around us, that these things are immovable, they're unshakable, Lord, and always true about us because they are founded in you. Thank you, Lord, for the great measure of these things that you have added to our lives these truths that are greater than anything we'll face the entirety of our pilgrimage. We thank you today for your grace and we thank you for your peace. Thank you for loving us. Thank you for understanding us. Thank you for the pity that you have upon us, Lord. And thank you for the grace and the peace that is ours, Lord, as you as we walk with you in a grace-based relationship. Thank you, Lord, that as we turn to you and we pray to you and as we meditate upon you, we can have that great confidence that you are a God of grace and that you are eager to lavish that grace upon us. Thank you for being our God, Lord, and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. If you stand